0: Namo tassa bhagavato. Arahato samma sambhutasa namo tassa bhagavato. Arahato samma sambhutasa namo tassa bhagavato. Arahato samma sambhutasa. Bhutang sankang namasami. So this afternoon, I'm going to make noises talking about silence. So silence is a subject, but it's only a word, but pointing at where there's sound is no longer the main object of attention like thoughts or sounds, and, and emotions speak to us of love and hate, and like and dislike. Memories are images in the mind. <clears throat> All our languages, well, whatever language we speak, it's, it's images created by human beings into the silence. They arise and cease not from another sound, not from something else, but from the silence of the present reality, which is, we call, here and now. So we notice that people talk about when they meditate, they they start thinking, and uh they want silence they want uh they want to uh, the shut up the mind and just dwell in the in the resonance of silence but even the wishing like that desires for silence is still words isn't it it's filled with this wish for something that you don't recognize you don't realize but which is always here and now so we many of us have struggled with this kind of conundrum because we we are highly conditioned to think and you know we've modern education is all about acquiring knowledge, acquiring views and opinions, forming uh, thoughts, imagination about imagining all kinds of image, things that, whether they're reasonable or fictional, fantasies or images of just flowers and trees, we imagine, we, we project our images onto the flowers and trees. The flowers and trees don't say they're trees, or flowers don't say they're flowers. It's it's we who speak English or whatever language equivalent to those words we project onto it. So we want to know what's the species of the tree, the flower, what's the name of the flower. And we think we know something about Life when we have a lot of information, and we required all the, all the biological terminology, medical terminology, scientific thoughts and views, spiritual ones, metaphysical theories, or just rubbish we our minds can be just filled with with nonsense and foolishness, or we. We dwell in a dark world of anger, hatred, and aversion. It's all a created state that we, we are hopeless, helplessly kind of create out of ignorance, not understanding Dhamma, not having a clue of what Dhamma is. Then we create a, a whole world, a universe of imagined, perceptions that we believe is our reality so thinking is a is a great gift in one way but it's also a curse because we we are victims of our own thinking process we want we've often wondered why can't life be fair why can't we just get along with each other? Why do we have to go to war? Why do men and women have difficulty understanding each other? Why, why do we have border problems and neighbor problems? And why can't we just get along and love each other? So these are wishes and desires. We like the systems we live in, the people we, we love and appreciate to be fair and just, reasonable, sensible, practical, to understand us as our egos, to, to respect our egos as what we really are. But what is the ego? What is a personality? And so, we identify with him, I'm an extrovert or an introvert. We have various names that we apply to different characteristics that individuals have. And the ego is generally what we... is a created form. It's a form, it's not ultimate reality. The personality is, is, uh, is a creation on all of us. We, we have different personalities. And some personalities we find, uh, inspiring, other personalities we find depressing. In our own mind, we can be inspired by inspiring thoughts and images. We can be depressed by negative ones. So we're helpless victims of our own creations, and we don't know what we're doing, and that's why the world is the way it is. Why there's wars in Ukraine, and why uh, there's starvation and petty kind of corruptions and in democratic governmental systems, and 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 disagreements and anger and hatred arising between. Married couples, family life. Because personalities are different, and we would like to find a a partner who really understands me as a person and respects me as a person is, is another wish that we might treasure. Hoping in the future to find the right one and happily ever after in marital bliss, but this never really happens because these are based on illusions, on ignorance. So the Buddha's teachings was pointing to the to uh, a way to get beyond ignorance to not just be a helpless victim with, with uh, just becoming educated and reasonable, psychologically normal and presentable and agreeable to the world, but how to get to the very source, the silence that is always here and now, never separate, but we don't notice it, except in rare moments maybe, So when we have a lot of noise, <clears throat> a lot of confusion, uh, we have, uh, we want silence. So we 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 demand sometimes silence because this is a, a word that we can use to command people to stop talking, making noises. But even if everybody stops talking and the cacophonous noises disappear, the thinking mind still can go on. Because thinking is, it's a creation, it's not a person, whatever. That's why I keep saying that you're not what you think. You can't find yourself as, a, as a, an object, a, a described object. You know, you might identify with a certain view of your personality. Or we have various opinions about others' personalities that we can share. We can say, he's an introvert, she's an extrovert, she has a good personality, he doesn't have any personality, he's bland, he's not interesting she's very lively interesting so we describe each other in these kind of words adjectives that we personally create in our mind and believe so the world is is a created state and then is there a god that creates the world you know so we might believe there is that God created the world, so that's another belief. Um, like God is a belief, the world that we believe God created is is another belief. It's a perception. So, what is in in uh, poly scriptures? There is the uncreated and there's if there was not the uncreated there'd be no escape from the created so how do we escape from the created we can't do it as a person it's impossible for personalities to uncreate themselves It's not annihilation, you know, the desire to not have a personality or change your personality. is still a creation that that the individual clings to and imagines as their reality. But if there was not the uncreated, then try to imagine the uncreated, make an image, Try to the, with with the best kinds of superlative superlative terms you can possibly imagine in the present, and you can't do it. It's it, the intellect is limited in this way; it can't imagine the uncreated. So in the in the Nibbana Sutta, the Buddha said, "There is the uncreated," and that's. What we begin to take an interest in the created, we can we can sum up quite easily in the fact, in the teachings that all conditions are impermanent and not self. So that covers everything you create, whether it's right or wrong, good or bad, reasonable, crazy, nonsense, intelligent the best or the worst, it's all creation. So whatever you think is a creation. So if, if we only create, know how to, uh, you know, we're, we're not that we deliberately do it, we're just conditioned to create endless thoughts. Emotions arise through various other conditions. In a world that we live in, that we create individually through, through our conditioning, through our, what we call our karma, our, our individual tendencies, habit patterns, cultural biases, racial biases, prejudices of all sorts. These are all creations that individuals create and identify with. So like with vipassana, meditation is in looking into the way things are. It's not telling you, you can't, it's not trying to say you have to believe in in the uncreated So there's no demand that you believe in something you can't imagine. Even the word God is personified in modern life as as a kind of patriarchal grandfather figure or some powerful dictator or one that creates everything and knows everything. So these are attempts... Out of our conditioning to to uh, to find peace and happiness in belief in some kind of benevolent deity, but is that the, what we are really experiencing here and now? Or what are we experiencing here and now? Is silence? Silence is here and now. It's not. It ha- it has no. Conditions, no qualities, but it's very powerful once you begin to recognize it. So when we talk about enlightenment or getting beyond suffering and non-suffering, then the the whole emphasis of the Buddhist teaching is pointing to this uncreated, unformed, unconditioned reality that is here and now that we we're not conditioned to recognize. So when we imagine silence and long for silence, we are caught in, in our in holding to a very uh, maybe peaceful concept of and wish for silence. But what is it if it's unconditioned? Is silence conditioned? Is it cultural? Is it personal? Is it good or bad, right or wrong? So investigating, we we start looking inward rather than trying to just find a peaceful, silent place to live in. Because you know, many of us have spent, uh, wasted our time in, in monastic life looking for the perfect place that is completely silent where we aren't encumbered with noisy people or unpleasant sounds. You know, so we can spend a lifetime searching the planet for for a nice silent place to live that doesn't upset me or or confuse me. But you no matter if you do find the, the kind of ideal silent refuge on planet Earth, you still got ignorance, not understanding the way things are. So even in the silence that you're you may be experiencing through the lack of of contact with sensory objects, is still the basic delusion is still there. The ego, the the cultural conditioning, and maybe we can, you know, through uh, arranging our life in such a way, we can avoid having to think a lot, or or be encumbered with a lot of unpleasant social situations, or noisy cities, or or noisy neighbors. But then we're stuck with the basic illusion of a separate self, and we we've, we've developed this whipper-worded desire to to get rid of the world, to to get away from suffering, to to find peace and happiness by a hermetic life, by training the mind to to concentrate on refined objects, to attain uh, blissful states through restraint, through one-pointed concentration on objects, through silence alone. But the Buddha was pointing to the, the, the source of all the the source of suffering, the causes of it. And it's very clearly stated. It's not a secret teaching that only the advanced, spiritually advanced uh, can, can uh, know about. But it's available, it's been available for thousands of years. Open to the world in general, to all of us, so it 's kind of inspiring now to see the in the, with the modern technology the amount of interest in in these Buddhist teachings or teachings that transcend the worldly conditioning that point to it, that direct our attention beyond just the the habit patterns that we've acquired, whether they're good or bad habits. And of course this is on internet, you can find all kinds of meditation videos and various teachers are teaching about mindfulness, awareness, consciousness, And this is important, because this is, you know, this is where we find the end of suffering, not through finding an ideal partner or a perfect situation to live in, but having recognized for oneself the stillness, the silence, that's natural, it's uncreated, Because you know, talks like this can inspire you, and hopefully it does, encourage you. But then the point is to look inward, rather than at various teachers or teachings, but to, to notice, begin to awaken to the way things are, that all conditions are impermanent. And can you sustain a separate personal perception of yourself as, you know, a, a good person or a bad person or how old are you, whether you're male or female, whether you're black or white. You know, these are constant references to what we cling to and hold to as, as our reality and what we, we strongly defend or justify or form biases and prejudices, by clinging to these perceptions. And we begin to recognize, to awaken to the fact that we're clinging to perceptions, that perceptions are very unstable and changing and permanent and non-self. So what is it that that is aware of perception? If the personality is nothing but a collection of perceptions and the sensory world that we call the real world, what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, what we think, what we've been conditioned to believe. If it's all perceptions, Perceptions are impermanent and not self. They're anatta, not not self. They're not a separate, there's no separate entity that has any permanent quality. So the personalities arise and cease according to conditions. So we, we have, have, like being... Uh, Senior monk. You know, then the, when you get to be called Ajahn or teacher, you acquire some kind of another personality, another perception to identify with, or a junior monk, or a Siddhidhara, or an Anagarika. Or we say, oh no, she's just a lay person, and then what lay person? And so the the mind is stuck in these perceptions that are fantasies, that are illusions, they're conventions that can be used, but they're not reality. So beyond being an Anjan, being a a lay person, a nun, or a monk, or anything, what what do we share in common at this moment that is non-personal, that is uncreated, unformed, unconditioned? What do we share with with all conditioned forms, with the animal world, with the birds, with the insects, with the squirrels, with all forms that have been created and arise and cease, are born and die, what is it that unites us that is the uncreated, unformed, unconditioned? So this is an important question to ask yourself what what is it that is aware of the perceiving ability can one perception perceive another perception you know so on say the personalities clash because they're different we hold to different ways of perceiving ourselves if I've always got to be considered Ajahn Sumato even under all conditions, am I always Ajahn Sumato? Even when I'm asleep in my kuti? Are you always the same person when you're happy, when you're sad, when you're when you're being approved of or disapproved of? And with awareness, mindfulness, you're aware that it it changes. You know, your personality will change according to praise and blame, success or failure. And what is aware of this? How, what is it aware that, what is aware? of how the personality changes. When you're being praised, you feel uplifted or happy. Or when you're being blamed for something you haven't done, you feel indignant, angry. And then with mindfulness or awareness, we're aware that we feel, I feel very angry, upset, misunderstood, unappreciated when I'm being blamed for something I haven't done, or being blamed for things I've done. And when I get titles and accolades and approval and respect, I feel like this. What is aware of feeling like this with approval or disapproval? Because there's certainly conscious awareness, whatever the conditions, how much they change for the better or for the worse. So this is what we begin to recognize. It's awakening to our true nature, which is not personal. It's not like my true nature okay. as as Ajahn Sumedho is, is like this. It's uh, Dhamma, the universal reality of the way things are. All conditions are impermanent. All Dhamma is not personal. Sape tama anatta, we chant in Pali. So, if we're not people or persons, what are we? And this is what we're we're encouraging you to really question, not to just believe and adopt Buddhist teachings and, and just believe them, but they're practical teachings. They're to be investigated, to be explored, to be realized individually for yourselves. So silence is unitive, when we, even in the noise and cacophony of life, this year they're planning building projects, more building projects here at Amravati. there's going to be a lot more noise, mechanical noise. And then we can, I can't stand it, can't bear, you know, I have to go to another place while these building projects are taking place. Well, I remember as a junior monk, monks advised me not to go to a certain branch monastery because they're building a sala and they're they're making a lot of noise. So I say, well, I'm not going there because they're they're building projects. I'm going to another place. So I did, and after my first uh, vasa, first pansa with Lungpa Cha, I went to this place... uh, uh, Pupek Mountain in the, in, in Sukho, Sukho district of Thailand, northeast Thailand. And so, um, I thought of what Bapong, there's all, there, there's so much doing all the time, a schedule to keep, and, and, uh, I wanted to have more of a reclusive life like a hermit, you know, being out in nature, away from the, the social contacts with others in some perfect situation. So I thought Pupek mountain would be the perfect situation. I'd visited there before uh, before I even went to Wat Mabong. And Pupek is in the Phu range in, in across the Northeast Thailand. So it's the highest peak in that range of mountains. And it has uh, ruins of uh, old uh, Cambodian, Khmer, uh, I think it was some kind of chedi or or palace of some sort. It's just in ruins of like an Angkor Wat, that era of history. So it had a kind of romantic image of these ruined, these ruined temples and, and the highest peak in the bupan Range, beautiful views of the valley below. I went with two other monks, Thai monks. And then uh, the bindabat was really quite uh, demanding because you climb to the top of this mountain and every day you go down at dawn you go down the, this this steep uh, mountain slope with rickety stairs, wooden stairs, part way down, and then then uh, you wait at the base of the of Pupek Hill and wait for villagers to come and offer food, <laughs> and then you have to go back, climb up the top of this mountain again and you get back about sometimes 11 o'clock just in time to eat your meal before 12. Well, I didn't mind all that, really. I mean, I I was physically fit, and the challenge of, uh, you know, the physical exertion, I quite appreciated. So I didn't complain about that. But one of the monks that lived with me, on the top of the mountain, I didn't like. And so, I spent a lot of time in my kuti thinking negative thoughts about this monk. And then a windstorm came and nearly blew my kuti off the cliff. And then I had caught malaria and had to be carried down the mountain by village men and lie under a tin shed in the hot season with all these little flies buzzing around, crawling in my ears and nose, and if I open my mouth, they'd fly in there, high fever. This is what I was looking, I was looking for peace and silence, the perfect situation. But life is like this, it's full of little flies and irritating insects and and it's this is the planet Earth is like this. Human society is like this. Nobody, you know, there's always somebody that irritates you that you don't like or don't agree with. Then malaria, unwanted disease, or COVID-19, this pandemic, nobody wants it. So out of all this, this sensory experience that we identify with, you know, we have certain ambitions and and ideals about how it should be, but this is the way it is. People fight and get along and, and don't get along. They quarrel over boundaries, national boundaries, racial problems, gender problems, sexual problems endlessly, these these are conditions that we I I'd strongly identify with. Then once we hold to the are these identities, then we are always opposed to those who don't agree with it. So life is 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 always a sense of opposition there's always a threat some kind of danger some kind of evil force uh, some kind of problem crises issues that arise in the in the condition realm so out of wisdom we begin to see that the that the world is like this it's not going to be perfect you're not going to get world peace As an ideal, as you wish it were, ideally, or you're not even going to get a peaceful mind just by sitting for hours in meditation, trying to to uh, fi- to, to be quiet and silent, but through awakening to natural silence that is uncreated, even in the midst of the noise. And that's the challenge with, with Lung Po Cha I remember recognized when I, I spent six months on Pupek Mountain, and then I went back to Wat Bapong to enter the Punsa there, and I was so glad to get back there. And Lung Po had the wisdom to let me experiment with this desire to be a hermit and live in, in in nature alone in some kind of idyllic, imagined idyllic situation. Because I realized that, that, that you know, with all my wishes for this perfect physical place, beautiful spot, it, the, ma- the malaria still exists there and little nasty little flies fly around you and uh, cyclones can come, winds, strong winds can blow somebody comes that you find annoying or unpleasant to be around it's like, you know, uh, trying to stop everybody from contacting me You know, so as alms mendicants, we're dependent on others. The Buddha made this very, decided very clearly that we were not to just become hermits living on mountaintops or in caves separate from the the society, but always connected to the society, to the village or the city or whatever. So the challenge for all of us is to recognize the silence here. Cuz it's here. When we we stop being averse to the noises or conditions that we're experiencing in the present when we let go we don't we don't get rid of the noise or the in, in uh, annoying situations that we find ourselves in, we're not trying to run away or deny or or get find a, a better place, but we begin to recognize the silence that's always here. While the noise, while the crises, while the problems arise and cease, come and go and change, <clears throat> like we've just finished a three-month winter's retreat. But during the winter's retreat, was it all that peaceful for every one of you? You know, because we have to live, even as a hermit, isolated in a, in a cave, we still have these conditioned thoughts, language, images, memories, views and opinions that arise and cease. And it's our willingness to, to recognize that we're not any of these things. We're not a thing. We're not somebody or something. So things, uh, you know, are created, they're conditioned, they're sankharas. Bodies are sankharas. And all sankharas are impermanent, so pay, sankhara, and ichava. So these two basic teachings of the Buddha Sapay Sankarani Cha Sapay Tamana Dana they're brilliant ways of examining life, investigating the realities that we find ourselves living with. And you find that nothing is real. No thing is very real. It, it, because it, its very nature is to arise and cease, to appear and disappear, to manifest, de-manifest. But what is with us, even at the top of Pupek mountain or in a busy day at Wat or during working periods in Amaravati, Chithurst or any place else, is the silence where all these conditions arise and cease. So there is the escape because there is the unborn, uncreated. And that's apparent here and now. Like in all these years of monastic life, this is what I've realized. The unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned is the reality of here and now. It's silent, it doesn't have a language. It has no quality. It's not about heaven being blissed out in heaven because the, the conditions still operate according to the, their nature, to their karma the body still gets old. Diseases still can manifest in these forms. Conditions change. There's there's generosity, there's frugality, there's praise and blame, peace and war on the worldly level. But we're not any of these things anymore. That's just the way things move and change according to what we call karma, cause and effect. So then the true nature that we all long for and aspire to is not something high up there in heaven or some remote, you know, refined conscious state, but apparent here and now. So in a monastery, because monasteries have a beginning, they'll have an ending eventually. They go through changes. In December, Ajahn Kaeblee, the, the abbot of Wat Nananachat in uh, Ubon in Thailand, is opening a, a new temple, beautiful new temple in Wat Bananachat. Ba And I'm the one that first lived started that the the this what we call Watpananachat in nineteen seventy-four, I think. And it was just a, a burial ground for the village of Bumai village. It's supposed to be a haunted forest. <clears throat> and uh it had nothing, it didn't have a well or, or you know, no electricity, it was just a, a kind of small forest outside a village. And uh, that was like 50 years ago or so, and, and now it's become a very famous monastery with a beautiful marble temple that will be opened in December. And I like to think of it as, uh, you know, in the early days of settling in it, uh, before it was even named Watpa Nanachat. Watpa Nanachat is the Thai name, like Watpa means forest monastery. And Nanachat means international. Because it was deliberately designed for teaching non-Thai speakers, Dhamma, meditation. Because at that time, 1974, there were so many uh, Westerners coming to Wat Pa And uh, then the, I was always involved in helping to translate Lung teachings into English and and so Lung Po Chai had this idea of establishing a separate monastery for non-Thai speakers. So I that's what I did. That was in nineteen seventy-four. So in two thousand twenty two, they'll open this beautiful temple. It's now a well established monastery. They've they've exp- uh, expanded the acreage of the property. And so it's changed, just from a few years, a few decades, it's from a, from a burial, village burial ground to an international center for teaching Dhamma. So that's, a, you know, one feels respect for that and joy in the fact that it, it you know, one didn't know how it was going to work. How, you know, what the point of it was, if anybody really be interested. And, uh, or how long it would last. And so, we've been, I was there two years, and then I came to England, to Hempstead. So then, it's had various. To, tomorrow, Ajahn Jayasaro is visiting, and he was one of the uh, who became an abbot later on. Ajahn Pasano was was uh, abbot of the monastery before him, and and so it goes on, go handed from one abbot to another. And that's the incessant changingness, impermanence of phenomena. They, you can't sustain what Banana chart as it originally was with grassroots sala and just a, a simple life uh, as I am kind of imagined it would be into an international center for ordaining as monks and practicing meditation. But someday, in banana chat will disappear too, so, so will Amravati, because that's the nature of conditioned phenomena. But that's not the point, it's not about sustaining conditioned phenomena so that everything lasts forever because that's that will be a very disappointing wish and desire. So, in the Buddhist teaching, all conditions are impermanent, so this prepares us for the change that we individually experience through our bodies. It's like this, being old. Old age is like this. And even though when I was young, I, I, empath- I could empathize, you know, I could sympath- more or less sympathize with the elderly, but I didn't know what it's like to be elderly till I became, till this body became old. <laughs> but am I really this elderly body, this old body? Is this, is this all I am? And when I die, what's left? You know, be cremated. People will want to keep my relics, maybe, <laughs> and all kinds of memorabilia arise from the death of a of a monk. You know, so people can fight over the ashes of a of a Kuba Ajahn who was cremated. Relics are so. Can be such an attachment and belief that relics are some real person in the past, Buddha relics, and and all the time, you know, we we give so much importance to the past, to the Buddha, the, the historical Buddha, Gotama the Buddha. But what is Gotama the Buddha right now? is a perception that we've acquired. It's a good perception, it's inspiring. But was Buddha, Gautama the Buddha, really pointing to himself as a refuge? The memory of, of a dead saint that we believe in. It's certainly, you know, it's better to believe in the Buddha than to believe uh, that nothing matters and life is pointless and meaningless. It's better to you know, it's more comforting to believe in a benevolent deity, a god because it's comforting as a as a, as a to the individual person to believe in something benevolent, good, and kind, and perfect. But what is benevolent, good, and kind, and perfect in the present moment is the silence that is here and now. That's all forgiving, where all karma ceases, that is truly peaceful, blissful, and perfect. So I offer this as a reflection